Welcome to the Candida Chronicles with our host, Michael Biamonte, Certified Clinical Nutritionist. In this podcast, Michael will answer your questions and reveal the shocking truth that the cause of most chronic ailments is not what you've been told. The source is Candida, a yeast overgrowth which, when it becomes systemic, can cause all sorts of seemingly unrelated ailments such as chronic fatigue syndrome and even weight gain. For more information on how Michael can help you, please visit healthtruth.com, that's health-truth.com, or phone his office at 212-587-2330. And now, without further ado, Michael Biamonte. This is Michael Biamonte, Clinical Nutritionist, with another episode of the Candida Chronicles. Today we have a very important topic. It is the topic of antibiotics. Now, for most of you who are seasoned listeners or seasoned, let's say, candida patients, we're not going to take up antibiotics in the, in the vein that you might think. We want to take up today antibiotics from the viewpoint of, well, the doctor told me I have to take antibiotics. I have bronchitis, I have to take antibiotics. I have a cold, I have to take antibiotics, etc. This is a tremendous fallacy. Now, before I go into the alternatives to antibiotics and what you can do, I first want to legitimately go over situations where taking antibiotics is medically correct, from my opinion, of course. Uh, If you're in an accident especially an accident which involves foreign objects, which might puncture your skin, uh, puncture your blood vessels. Antibiotics can be thought of as as legitimate because there's a high percentage and a high possibility that you, you may get tetanus or you may develop some bad infection because of this. Now, Dental work could be another aspect where antibiotics may be useful or may be important because there are some dental infections that if you don't take the antibiotic, the infection could potentially spread to your heart. And that could be a very bad situation. So in some cases of dental work, this is important. I believe that there have been over the years a few uh, incidents where some uh, famous celebrities who had heart conditions actually died because they had some type of dental work and did not take antibiotics. But nonetheless, this is a case where antibiotics would be useful and warranted is if there's any possibility that having the dental infection could possibly spread to your heart antibiotics would be necessary. Any type of overwhelming systemic infection where heroic medicine would be needed would be cause for taking antibiotics. Let's say you're bitten by a dog, the dog has rabies. It could again, it could again be some type of accident. Uh, these are cases where the antibiotics definitely would be useful and warranted to take. In the treatment of Lyme disease, there is the possibility that antibiotics are necessary. 
in my own work with Lyme disease, I've had patients who have not taken antibiotics and have only taken my Lyme protocol and have done very well. I've also seen cases where the person needed the Lyme protocol in conjunction with mine in order to get well. So we will say that that is a variable situation. Certainly after having an operation, especially any kind of major operation, antibiotics are warranted and reasonable because of the fact that you've been opened up and it's possible that different Klebsiella staph or strep infections might invade you from any possible uh, poor sanitary practices in the hospital that you're in. Hospitals, by the way, are probably the best places that you can acquire infections, as many people joke. It happens to be true. So these handfuls of examples I've given you are definitely legitimate cause to take antibiotics. The biggest fallacy in the world, I believe, is where the person goes to the doctor with a cold or a flu and the doctor prescribes antibiotics. There are certain descriptive terms that I could use which probably would get me in trouble, so I will not use those descriptive terms. Uh, we can say nitwit, moron, uh, etc. These are safe terms to use. And the term nitwit or moron certainly describes doctors who prescribe antibiotics for their patient who has a flu or a cold. Now, why I say this is very simple. A flu or a cold is caused by one, a virus, one's called the rhinovirus, and another is caused by an influenza virus. These are viruses. Antibiotics, meaning against the body, this is what they mean in Latin, are antibacterial medicines. These are agents which harm or kill bacteria in the body. They kill both indiscriminately good bacteria and bad. Um, they are famous for killing good bacteria, which is how we develop candida, and then how we have my medical practice, and now we have this radio show, the Candida Chronicles. But aside from that, they kill bad bacteria, and that is their primary focus. Antibiotics do not kill viruses. I repeat, an antibiotic does not kill a virus. So when the doctor prescribes an antibiotic, he is falsely prescribing a medicine to try to manipulate the virus. Colds and flus are not cured by antibiotics. Colds and flus laugh at antibiotics. They have no effect on the cold or flu. If the nitwit, uh, I'm sorry, if the doctor has any common sense at all, the reason he is prescribing the antibiotic is not because he thinks he is going to be taking a whack at your flu or cold virus. It's because he is attempting to reduce the secondary infections that occur as a result of the cold or flu. So let me give you an example of what happens. The cold or flu virus permeates your tissues. 
it begins the virus or the, the, or the flu cold syndrome. You start to feel achy, feverish, tired. This is the hallmark of the virus. As the illness progresses and evolves, secondary bacterial, I, I should say secondary infections begin. These secondary infections stem from bacteria, which are naturally occurring in the area that the virus has attacked your tissues. These bacteria then jump in to the viral attacked area and they begin to cause a secondary infection. This is when you now start to develop yellow-green discharge or swollen, painful areas which are more localized, as an example, the lungs. You can start getting a yellow-green hack in your lungs. Sinuses, yellow-green discharge with sinus pain. Throat, usually white, yellow, green, painful, typically due to strep. These are some of the secondary infections that can develop as a result of the primary infection, which was the virus, meaning the rhinovirus or the influenza. So we start out innocently developing a viral infection, which is the cold or flu. It gives the majority of the cold flu symptoms. And then if we're unlucky, the, as the cold and flu progresses, sometime after five to seven days, it goes into the second stage, which is the bacteria infection. So the first stage of the cold or flu is always a viral infection, and then it becomes a bacterial infection. If the doctor has any common sense and he gives you an antibiotic, he's giving it to you for the secondary infection, which is bacteria, and he may be hoping to speed up the entire process of uh, this cold or flu by having you have a much lighter, quicker stage of the bacterial infection, which is the second phase. In actuality, what the doctor's doing is ultimately uh, a disservice to you because the antibiotic are going to destroy your friendly bacteria. And even if you're lucky enough not to develop candida as a result of this, you're harming your immune system. You may have heard over the last few years, occasionally on the news, there'll be a doctor who has all this research and he says, well, the antibiotics aren't good because they hurt your immune system. What he's referring to is your friendly flora. Your friendly flora is the first step of your immune system. It's your first uh, barrier and protective guide to a, a good immune system. When your friendly bacteria is hurt or compromised, bad organisms and bad microbes take over, and now you have a bad immune system because your body is busy fighting them. So... Taking an antibiotic for a cold or flu or bronchitis or any such thing is nonsense. Unless you have developed a bacterial stage of that illness. So if your cold or flu or bronchitis or whatever it is has graduated into the secondary stage, which is the bacterial stage where you're having a yellow-green discharge and generally localized areas that are painful, hot, or swollen, you have a legitimate bacterial infection there and anti the use of antibiotics could be argued. However, I'll go far as saying that it's still not necessary. 
completely not necessary because in the natural kingdom, we, we are possessed with gifts from nature which help us to attack viruses and bacteria without having to take man-made antibiotics which destroy indiscriminately all bacteria, including our friendly flora. So what can we do in these cases? Well, to go over a list of things, we know that as far as nutrients go, vitamin C is proven by Linus Pauling to be an immune-boosting nutrient. When taken to bowel tolerance, meaning when you take vitamin C to the degree that you're getting a loose stool, and if you somewhat keep yourself on the verge of a loose stool taking vitamin C, you will significantly increase your immune response, most likely against bacteria and viruses. Vitamin A is strictly an antiviral nutrient. It's one of the most potent antiviral substances known to man, especially in the mucous membranes of your body, which would include your sinus and your lungs. When using vitamin A, one wants to use water-soluble A so that there's no danger of the A accumulating in your liver and causing any harm. We want to take somewhere between 25,000 to 100,000 units of water-soluble vitamin A per day when you're fighting the flu or the cold. This will dramatically reduce the time that the virus has a chance to replicate. Zinc lozenges. Zinc is probably the most uh, potent antiviral nutrient. Zinc works in conjunction with vitamin A. Zinc itself is highly antiviral, and when used in a lozenge form, it's been documented many times over that zinc lozenges can reduce the time of your total flu or cold probably by half. Elderberry. Elderberry extract, highly antiviral and highly specific against the rhinovirus and the influenza. It can dramatically cut back the time that your cold or flu exists. Echinacea and golden seal together have been used for many years to fight colds, flus, and infections. They're an interesting combination because golden seal is primarily an antibacterial, and echinacea could be thought of as an immune stimulant which boosts the entire immunity. Echinacea has been known to increase interferon, which then increases your immune attack. The trace mineral germanium is another, which is highly stimulating to the immune system, which also is known to increase interferon. The mineral copper is known to be highly antibacterial. In fact, the method of operation or the mechanism of action of many antibiotics is to sequester copper from the tissues, mobilizing the copper and actually using the copper as a poison to the bacteria. This is a very interesting thing to study, is the mechanism of antibiotic use with copper. I would recommend that you do that. I'm not going to go too much into it here because I don't want to give people misunderstandings as this is a subject that needs to be studied where you can sit down and clear words or look up words that you might not know the meaning of so that you get a full understanding. 
let's suffice to say that copper is highly antibacterial as a nutrient. The herb lomatium is multi, uh, multi-test. Uh, lomatium can be highly antibacterial. It's been found to be effective against strep and staph. And lomatium is also highly antiviral. It's been used for quite a long time against viruses of the Epstein-Barr category or the herpes class virus. A substance called monolaurin, which is a fatty ester, I think we've discussed it on this program before. Monolaurin, which is a substance contained in mother's milk, known as lauracetin or lauracetic acid, very effective antiviral. But it, its mode of action is to destroy the outside envelope of the virus, which you could think almost as like the outside skin of the virus. So we have all of these. This is just a, a short list I'm giving right now. More to demonstrate that there is an abundance of things in nature which can be used against both viruses and against bacteria. Now, a typical reason people will take antibiotics would have to do with food poisoning or some type of, uh, let's say, Montezuma's revenge that you may get. In the case of the Montezuma's revenge, or, or another condition called beaver fever, which is somewhat similar, beaver fever is a condition picked up typically by swimming in lakes. These lakes are contaminated with an organism called Giardia, which typically gives diarrhea and fever. Um, Giardia is not an organism which will respond to antibiotics. It's an organism which responds more to antiparasitic agents uh, in particular, Giardia will respond to vegetable tannates, sometimes called zinc tannates. Um, the product name that you'll find this product listed under is Tanobit. And these vegetable tannates have the ability to reduce the activity of Giardia and other types of protozoa. The Tanobit or vegetable tannates are particularly effective against microorganisms that tend to cause diarrhea. Grapefruit seed extract, known as paramycocidin, you can find it under a trade name of citricidal, is very effective at at destroying giardia when it's especially combined with artemisia, a a wormwood herb. You'll find this under both names, Artemisia and Wormwood. Very effective at affecting a big reduction in the Giardia or the beaver fever. Charcoal, activated charcoal capsules are now found in health food stores and drug stores. And that is probably the most effective substance you can take against any kind of general food poisoning. Food poisoning is typically caused by protozoa, which are tiny parasites, or harmful bacteria. Taking the charcoal absorbs these bad things in your system and essentially neutralizes them. Charcoal is the first treatment of choice when you have 
food poisoning, not antibiotics. Silver has great uses. There is a substance that's been known and called colloidal silver for many years. Some people know it as mild silver protein. The story of silver is a long one in medicine. Silver originally was used as an anti-infective. In the early part of the century, silver was made chemically, which made it more toxic. When silver was taken in abundance by people, their skin would actually call, be, uh, turn gray, have a gray tint to it. And they, they gave this a, a name. I, you have to excuse me, I don't recall the name of it right now. But it does have a name when your skin turns gray from taking silver. However, silver is now no longer made chemically. It is made electronically, and that makes a whole difference. In the modern versions, versions of silver that are made electronically, it's not thought that one will obtain this silver disease if you're using large amounts of silver over a period of time. To make silver, the modern type of silver, typically they take two bars of, of nearly as pure a silver as you can get. They put the two bars in a water base, so that like a container with water, and usually a pinch of sea salt to increase the conductivity. And they'll run a current through this. What ends up happening is some of the little particles of silver end up dancing off the bar and sort of electronically dance throughout the water. They're suspended there. This is the most primitive way I can explain how the silvers are made nowadays since they're no longer made chemically. Silvers made in this fashion are not toxic and they do not cause this disease or, or, or malady where your skin turns gray from taking it. The silver producing industry is a bit confused because when you go investigate silvers, you will find there's different parts per million. This is known as PPM. Parts per million of silver equals how many parts per million of silver you have in a given space. You will find that it's typical to find silvers that are anywhere between 25 parts per million up to, in cases, 1,000 or 1,100 or higher. So here you have a very high con concentration of silver in these high parts per million products. However, the story of silver doesn't end with parts per million or how much you have concentrated of silver. It also involves the micron size of silver, which is essentially to say the particle size. How big is an individual micron or particle of your silver product? Be now becomes the question. It's been found that certain micron sizes of silver are much more effective against virus and others more effective against bacteria. Some more effective against Lyme disease, some are not. And the industry itself has not really clarified this very well. I'm, I'm uh, at this point researching this myself in order to try to bring about some kind of clarity or standards because within the retail market of people selling silvers, there's not a lot that's explained about the silver about the parts per million, about the micron size. Generally speaking, what I have found as a general rule is that the larger the micron size and the higher the parts per million, the more effective the silver seems to be against bacteria, where the opposite is true, where we have the lower parts per million, 
the smaller micron size, the silver is more effective against viruses and perhaps Lyme disease. So here we have it. We have a case now, if we want to look at this from a practical case. The person has bronchitis. The doctor wants them to take antibiotics. My first question is, do you have a yellow, green discharge, or is your discharge clear and white? If the person tells me the discharge is clear and white, I know that they're probably not in the bacterial stage. So I know that any substance that we would use to fight bacteria is going to be a waste of time for them. In this person, we want to look at things that are going to attack viruses. So then at that point, we look to use things like the vitamin A, like the monolaurin. Uh, also, one thing I didn't mention before, the mushroom extracts. In China, they now make different products, which are extracts of all the popular mushrooms, which have a tremendous immune-stimulating effect, particularly against viruses, colds, and flus. The Metagenics company makes a product that's called microferon, which anyone can get from Healthwave. And microferon uh, stimulates the release of interferon and also the overall immune response. And this is usually made with a combination of several different Chinese mushrooms. At one point, this product was used in Japan, uh, sorry, China against cancer. When it was bought out by the meta, uh, Metagenics people, it was primarily marketed for colds and flus because it does such a great job at boosting the immune system in that manner. So we have a person with bronchitis. They have a clear discharge. It's not yellow or green. We will suggest the antivirals to them. The odds are is the antivirals will cut the or limit the time that their body has in dealing with this virus so they can stay off the antibiotics and stay off the yeast bandwagon because there does become a roller coaster with many people where they continually end up taking antibiotics because they get sick only to reacquire more yeast or fungal infections. This is also typically true of people with sinus infections. One can develop a sinus infection to the degree that he is forced into a cycle of taking antibiotics to handle the secondary bacterial infection that you get with, this, with the fungal sinus infection. Very typically what happens is the person starts out with a sinus infection from bacteria. And because over the years he's continually taken antibiotics to kill the sinus bacterial infection, he now develops a fungal sinus infection, which the antibiotics have no effect on. The antibiotics used in this case, again, are being only effective against the bacteria which are present. They're not affecting the, the fungal aspect of this at all. And if anything, they're perpetuating the fungal aspect because they continue to cause yeast or fungus problems. Usually, uh, a person with a chronic sinus infection that's candida-related has the, the candida in the fungal form and not in the yeast form. I don't believe, personally, I've ever seen a case of yeast infection in the sinus. It's usually the fungal form. There are various sprays, nasal sprays, you can get in the natural kingdom. One is called X-Clear, which contains xylitol, something that helps fight fungal infections in the sinus. And the other is a citricidal spray, or you can call it a grapefruit seed extract spray, which contains the citricidal, which is the very thing that will kill fungal infections in your sinuses. So these are, th these are things that can be used. 
The citricidal is also effective against many bacteria. So the, the, the one thing that I'd like to say that I really would like our listeners to uh, re- remember is that in the natural kingdom, usually products are broad spectrum, but broad spectrum in a way that goes way beyond the medical use of the term. In the medical field, when doctors talk about things that are broad spectrum, they're usually referring to an antibiotic which has a very wide spread of different bacteria it will kill. In the natural kingdom, when we use the word broad spectrum, we're more referring to the fact that these substances can be antifungal, antiviral, antibacterial, all at the same time. And this is what makes natural treatments for normally what you would take on bacteria killing antibiotic for far superior. Because if you can take a substance, a single substance, which both will kill bacteria, virus, and fungus in your body, the problem of developing secondary infections like a candida in a person who's treating themselves with an antibiotic for a primary bacterial infection is virtually nil. If antibiotics were broad spectrum in this way, you'd have nothing to worry about because the antibiotic would kill your bad bacteria and it would simultaneously kill parasites or fungus which was attempting to grow in its place. There you would have an easy time of it. The problem with antibiotics is that they're indiscriminate. Someone had used the term many years ago, I think it was in the Merck manual, that the prevalence of yeast infections was occurring now because of the indiscriminate use. Uh, Very bad. Um, Doctors will very typically, as we said earlier, prescribe the antibiotics. And some of them might actually believe it's going to be antiviral in, in its action. But the end result is going to be usually an overgrowth of yeast or fungus it's not going to be an inhibition of the virus. When you use these uh, remedies that we have in the natural kingdom, with, which are both antiviral, antifungal, and antibacterial all at the same time, you have at your disposal medicines which can kill all the forms of infections without allowing any one of them to particularly rise. I see now that's, that's a superior treatment. So I hope that I have dismissed this urban legend of the magic bullet for you today. The magic, we have two definitions of the magic bullet over the years. The first definition, an original one, was an antibiotic. Was called a magic bullet because it could kill bacteria which previously were difficult to kill or which were escaping treatment and causing people great infections and perhaps even death. This is the term magic bullet that we're using here today. The other term magic bullet was used in the Kennedy assassination to describe the actions of this one, this one bullet that seemed to be able to dance in the air and turn and do all these crazy things. But the magic bullet, as we know it, 
being an antibiotic is not necessary to take when you're sick unless you have some of the maladies that I had mentioned earlier. When someone has a cold or a flu or bronchitis or some such thing, even I would argue pneumonia, the antibiotic is not necessary and it actually could be harmful. Taking probiotics with the antibiotic is not always a solution. That may not always work. It certainly should be done, but it may not always be enough. If someone is found to have pneumonia, the first question you have to ask, is it viral or is it bacterial? You have to differentiate so that you know what to take. The treatment for viral pneumonia would be quite different than bacterial pneumonia. Well, if we have any questions out there, you're free to email me your question. Keep in mind that when the doctor says you have to take antibiotics, your question should be why? Am I treating virus or am I treating bacteria? If you do this, if you ask this, you're not only helping yourself, but you're actually also helping the doctor to be more effective in his treatment. Well, this is Michael Biamonte, clinical nutritionist. I hope you found this edition of the Candida Chronicles useful, and we will be speaking to you again this coming Thursday. That's a wrap for this episode of the Candida Chronicles featuring Michael Biamonte, Certified Clinical Nutritionist. Michael holds a Doctorate of Nutropathy and is a New York State Certified Clinical Nutritionist. He is a professional member of the International and American Association of Clinical Nutritionists and of the American College of Nutrition, and he's a member of the Scientific Advisory Board for the Clinical Nutrition Certification Board. For more information on how Michael can help you, please visit healthtruth.com, that's health-truth.com, or phone his office at 212-587-2330.